Welcome to Playmakers, the game industry podcast. Whether you work at a studio, publisher, service provider, or startup, this is the podcast that will give you all the information and entertainment you need to succeed in the game industry. Who am I? Just your friendly neighborhood veteran designer and producer, Jordan Blackman. In each episode of Playmakers, I go to work uncovering insights, tactics, and know-how from a wide range of game industry luminaries. My goal? To help you win the game of making games. Are you ready? Then let's begin. All right, we are back. It's another episode of Playmakers Podcast, but something is different. And here's what that something is. I'm on vacation. So I'm on a different microphone. I've got a whole different vibe going. Feels good. It's nice. But it hasn't stopped me from making sure that we get our episode to you because we have a really good one with this interview with Travis Boatman. Travis is the CEO and founder of Carbonated, an LA-based mobile game studio. He's also a 25-year veteran of the game industry. He's been in mobile alone for 20 years. He served as a senior VP at Zynga and at Electronic Arts, where he led global studios and mobile game strategy. So Travis is a really intelligent and effective leader and thinker in the mobile game space. And we have kind of a deep dive into his process of working with his founders to think through what he calls the thesis of his studio, the thesis of their studio. So that thesis, you know, consists of these pillars that he has, which is like the technology side, the business side, and what and what he calls the appeal side. In fact, I think he says engineering, business, and appeal. So we go deep into those. We also go into some of the decisions that they made creating Carbonated around things like, you know, are they going to be a single game studio or a multi-game studio? Should they start with work for hire or should they start by doing their own project. So we really dive deep into all that sort of stuff. If you are interested in starting a studio or kind of understanding the considerations that go into that, you're going to love this episode. If you know someone who is doing that, then please share this episode with them. It's going to help them. It helps the show and it's going to make you look super cool. So please do that if you do know someone who would enjoy this. With all that said, I know that you are going to love this interview. So let's get right down to it. Here we go with Travis Boatman. Travis, welcome to Playmakers. It's really great to have you on. It's funny because every time I say, I want to say it's Travis motherfucking Boatman. (laughs) I don't know why. Do other people want to just add that in there? Possible. It's possible. That might just be me. It's possible. Might not be the first time that... uh... Somebody's uh, modified my name in, in conversation. So. I think the most important thing to know about you, Travis, is that you are the person who convinced me to get AirPods. There we go. I like it. I've made your life a little bit better and more expensive. I'm like seven pairs in now, <laughs> but I see you've got what? What are those? Are like the new ones, right? The new Apple. Yes, these are the Air, AirPod Maxes, and um, they're very expensive. Normally, I wouldn't wouldn't do that. But I can't remember. I think it was maybe Zach Norman, who's one of the founders of Jamdat, but he originally told me like. You know, if you, if you do a pie chart of your life and you look at the time you spend doing things, that's where you should put your money. So you should have a really good bed because you spend, you know, eight hours a day in it. And then I thought it was a very wise thing to say. So I, I, I thought about the time I spend in building video games and, and on this topic and a lot of time in front of a computer. And so I invested in good equipment, you know, good, good cameras, good, good headphones, good, comfortable chair, uh, you know, good ergonomics for the office. I spent a lot of my time sitting there. I see you have a, a much better mic than I do. So that's on my list of to do's to get a better mic. So I'm jealous. I mean, I've been kind of doing the same thing. I imagine a lot of people have been during the pandemic. It must have been very good for mic sales and headphone sales and fancy chair sales. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're a guy who, when, when I think of you, I think of really awesome 
producer who very quickly rose up to executive producer to vice president to senior vice president and now run your own studio. And I sort of think of you and, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, Travis. I, when I when I think about you, I think of like a sort of a classic EA style producer who like is essentially like a born entrepreneur type or an intrapreneur where you're doing similar things that you would as an entrepreneur, but inside a corporate environment is, would you say that's a fair description of kind of your background and skill set? Yeah. You know, I'm sort of a, I don't think I'm that unusual in this space, but I've always been a really good problem solver. And I think my drive or like why I'm in video games and why I love this business so much is my, my primary driver is I love making something and entertaining players with that thing that I built or, or was part of a team that built it. And obviously this is built by lots of people, but I always love that reward at the end of it. Whatever you build goes out to lots of people and you can see that it makes their lives better. They smile, they enjoy the product that you built. And so really those are my two primary drivers. I, I love to build things that get in the hands of customers and make their lives better. They smile, they enjoy entertainment, I think is a noble cause. And two, I'm good at solving problems. And so I think my career path has always been trying to figure out how to get something in front of people. And it's one of the reasons why I switched to mobile uh, in the late 90s, because I could just see that more people had mobile phones and everybody had them and they're not going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, if you could get games to people on mobile phones, you're going to get a larger audience and they're going to be able to play the game wherever they are. They're not going to be stuck in their, their basement playing games. Um, and so that's sort of why I decided to go mobile was I just looked at it as sort of, well, this is where players are going to be. So I'm following the players. That's how I joined Jamdat. That's why I was in the studio side of Jamdat because I like making product. And I had to go to publishers because they had access to customers. And so, you know, we got acquired by EA. I kept doing that at Electronic Arts. And then part of the reason I went to Zynga was a new method of live ops, right? This idea that you're talking to customers, you don't just give them one piece of entertainment, you keep giving them more pieces of entertainment. So it continues. And we were doing some of that at EA, but a lot of it was being pioneered at Zynga. And uh, I had a very strong draw for the folks at Zynga. They knew me well, and they were trying to get me to come over. And it was exciting. And, and I wanted to learn this new way of, of entertaining customers. Um, so that's sort of what drew me to Zynga. And then ultimately, why I decided to start Carbonated, you know, the, the image behind me is from our game, and, and uh, why I thought it was a great time uh, to start a company is because the, the walls of the publishers were falling down. They're getting commoditized by the big tech companies. And as a kind of creator who wanted to get product to customers, you could do it directly now. You could build a studio, yeah. you could make a product, you could submit it to the app store and it could get in front of customers and you didn't necessarily need the, the traditional publisher to do it. Uh, and so that was really the driver for why starting a company and taking the entrepreneurial journey was it wasn't really about kind of being an entrepreneur. It was about saying, hey, I can remove even more barriers between the content creators and the studio and the customers. So that's what led me to uh, to starting a company. Got it. And how did you know when that was a transition you were capable of doing? Like there's the desire to do it. And then there's doing like, I can actually make this happen. When did that light switch go off for you? I think it was simply that just life is short. And I, I probably didn't really know. I, I sort of throw myself into lots of things like that. There's a, my wife has to tolerate some of these things that I do. But one of the things that I did was learning to sail. Um, I uh, ended up throwing myself into sailing with no experience and uh, took kind of a crash course and just jumped on a boat and started sailing and figured it out. So I've always been a little bit of a, again, a problem solver. And so I can sort of look at the objective and say, okay, I know what I want to do. How do I get from here to there and solve problems along the way? And that is a lot of what the entrepreneurial journey is about. You sort of have a destination in mind, whether it's a thesis or a product or service that you're trying to build. 
and then you sort of work work your way through it, sort of one one foot in front of the other, and solve problems along the way. And I really thought, you know, what's the worst that I could do? I could fail, right? And at least at least I tried, and I had an interesting life, and, and made an effort at it. And it is as hard as people say it is, you know, doing that journey is tough, but it's super rewarding as well. Yeah, I, I just sort of said, well, I'm not getting any younger, and I've always been in the video game industry, and I've loved it my whole life, and I wanted to take a shot at it without the barriers between uh, myself and the team and the customers. So that's sort of what made me just do it. I thought, and, and frankly, there's kind of no better time to, to start a company than now, now being we started about 2015. But, you know, even today, uh, it, there's no better time. It really is kind of a golden age of gaming. Yeah, it's, it's a great time to do it. It's funny you mentioned sailing because I, I just took my ASA 101 and, and I'm taking 103 in August. You'll appreciate this. I crashed the course when I was in San Francisco. I did it while I was at Zynga. Uh, I literally called them up and said, I want to, you know, crash the course, hadn't done any sailing yet. And they said, are you sure? And I was like, put me on a boat. I can do it. And they studied and studied and studied. They put me on a boat in 40 knot wind in San Francisco Bay and I crashed the course. It was a little, little crazy. Which course did you crash? Keelboat 101. Oh, 101. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. The bay is no joke. That's where I'm doing it as well. It's it's pretty serious out there. But okay. Okay. Well, I don't want to go too far down that road. What was step one for you starting this studio? So you you have this realization. Life is short. It's time to do it. What happens next? Yeah. So, so it was really sort of what's the thesis of the company? Obviously, companies are a group of people building a product or service. So all that methodology. And so what's the, what's the product? What's the service? And for me, that product needs to be uh, solving some some problem for customers. And in video games, I have sort of two different lenses on how I think about video games. On one, on one side, I think about the three pieces, engineering, foundation, business, and kind of the fashionable appeal of a game. Those are the kind of the three fundamental blocks on any kind of games business. You need those three pieces, you know, again, engineering, appeal, and business. And actually it goes in order, engineering, then business, then appeal. Because obviously games are interactive, they're built on technology. You got to have some technology, either partnership or people who can who can create the engineering and the software part of it. Business is next because you can't do this for, for free and you need to pay people and you need to hire good people or you have to already have money that you're spending. So there's a business component to it. And then third is building something that is fashionably interesting or provocative or beautiful or something that draws in customers. And you can see some of the simplest games, you know, don't have, they're not heavy in appeal or, or, or sort of the graphics. And whether that's, you know, little simple chess games or, or Minefield or, you know, Flappy Bird, you can list a lot of games that are relatively simple on the appeal side of things, but they're, they're sort of uh, either engineering or gameplay innovations versus just graphics. And but of course, that ultimately does matter for different kinds of games like ours behind us. So when you say they're in order, what do you mean? Like chronological order in terms of how you think about them as a studio? Like what, what does that mean for you that they're in a particular order that you you need to sort of appreciate them in that order because obviously if you don't either partner with with technology and these days you can use that relatively easily something like a unity uh, you need to solve for your technology first because ultimately your game does sit on on a technology stack there is no game without technology is the simplest way to put it there's a lot of sort of business entrepreneurs who move into games and a little bit i think overly discount how important the technology part of this industry is and it's also where a lot of innovation comes from truly um, even game mechanics that sort of are pioneered on top of technical innovation are often forgotten about but i think a lot of the reasons why battle royale genres and a lot of the multiplayer genres are doing so right now is because of multiplayer tech that scales that you can really do these multiple hundred person plus matches all at the same time. That technology is powering these new game modes 
which is powering the appeal and then the businesses that sit on top of them. So engineering is kind of like the whole thing of what is unlocked right now by the current environment in terms of technology and what does that enable? Yeah, and, and there's always this kind of technical arms race in all games. It's true in mobile and it's not always graphics. You know, a lot of times it's, I mean, today there's a lot going on with NFTs and blockchain. I'm not an expert in that, but that is a technology that is driving that, that innovation on top of it. It wasn't just a sort of a business idea. It's actually the technology powering from the bottom up. You know, there are, you know, the fact that Unity exists is this great technical engine that is provided to studio creators to build amazing products. That's a technology that's powering a big part of the industry. And you can go on and on. What, what Unreal is doing with a lot of their new technology is pretty amazing. That's powering new kinds of games. The service providers, the Amazons, the Apples of the world. I mean, geez, just the devices capabilities these days with Apple Silicon and the M1 and those devices are getting more and more powerful. That's a really big technology driver that's pushing the quality and the business models of games forward. And you can go on and on and on. But I think understanding the foundation of all of the video game industry sits on these technology pillars is just a wise thing to understand. Doesn't mean you have to go, you know, build them, you can leverage them, but understanding what's changing and why is one of the reasons that I think people can sustain their careers in video games is that you need to always keep learning, but what are you learning? You're learning the new technology, you're learning the latest devices, the latest systems, the latest software, the latest services that are being provided. That's all technology that's moving forward. While I think the fashionable part of games, sort of the, the appeal, the look and the feel and the brands, that always is fluid and changes constantly, but it doesn't sort of march forward the way technology does. It's just a constant turbulent change. You know, there's always cool things you can make in, in games all the time, but technology sort of is progressive. It just moves forward. So to, to stay relevant in games, you got to kind of keep learning and moving forward with technology. I love that. Yeah, because one of the things about games that appeals to me is that there's always something new to do. There's always something new to learn. And your point is, hey, this is opportunity, essentially. Like if you, that's where the puck is going is what's happening in the tech. And therefore you can build a studio around that, where that, that space that you can see. Yeah, I'll, I'll be sort of funny. My, the very first platform I ever worked on was Philips CDI. You know, those old CDI discs back in the, the late, late 80s, yeah. early 90s. Imagine if I was the best Philips CDI studio in the world, right? Like you'd be out of business today because it doesn't exist anymore. Same with Genesis, same with PlayStation 1, same with PlayStation 2, same with early PCs without graphics cards, same with first generation graphics cards, same with the first flip phones, you know, the first iPhone. All that stuff is gone. So if you build expertise and you never advance the technology, clearly you, you become a dinosaur and, you, and you've got a business. So to stay relevant, you've always got to keep learning the latest thing. And, you know, depends on how much you want to be on that bleeding edge. Um, there's, there's obviously downside to betting too hard on the future of technology and missing timing or not having a large enough market or it being too complicated to build a game on top of it. You're, you're exactly what you said, where the sort of skate where the puck is going. If you can kind of figure out where the puck is going and then time it right and be kind of more on the, the front edge, ultimately what that means is players get something new. You know, they get to play a game a new way. They get to play a game differently. Maybe it's better graphics or more players, or, you know, they get to have ownership of items through NFTs and blockchain, whatever, whatever those technologies are. But ultimately they power new experiences for players. And as we know, people like new stuff. They want to play new, new cool experiences. So they're not always powered by technology, but a lot of times they're. Yeah. So for you with Carbonated, how did you approach the sort of technology opportunity at that time? So sort of two ways. So one Shout out to my co-founder, Lloyd Toulouse. You know, I wouldn't start the company unless I had a very strong technical co-founder. 
And I sort of actually spent about nine months or so looking around for kind of the right technical partner, looking for somebody who was full stack, who loves technology, who loves games, who's a hard worker, who likes learning new technology is, is, is sort of tech forward, I guess, if you could call it. And I wouldn't start the company unless I had a tech co-founder, because again, my view, you got to start from technology and, and build up. And so um, I wanted to build a studio that was a tech forward studio that built technology that could create new experiences from the ground up. And so I spent a lot of time looking for a technical co-founder and I found it in, in Lloyd. And uh, when I found it with him, I knew we could, we could start the company and get going. So I started with the technical co-founder um, as the way that, that I did that. And then through kind of our relationship and we've worked together for a long time now, um, we, we have you know, multiple conversations a week about where's tech going, how much risk are we taking, what should we tackle, you know, who should we partner with, which tech should we just use off the shelf, what tech should we build, um, what is the advantage of building that tech, is it defendable, we have like lots of these conversations about technology, and he's just a, a, a extremely talented uh, co-founder, and uh, Carbonated wouldn't be where it is today without him. And I remember seeing some of your demos, what was that, was that a GDC, so I know that you do have some pretty, pretty incredible and unique tech that you've built. Yeah, we, as part of that, you know, it's sort of interesting. We had a, a particular thesis that one of the reasons why we started the company is that more and more what I call like traditional publishing technology is getting commoditized by the big players, you know, whether it's analytics or it's distribution or it's user acquisition or it's engines. You know, my favorite simplest example is all the big studios. When I used to work with them, you know, you'd have internal big engines that you have tons of resources building these unique engines for a unique game. And now you have these engines, you know, Unreal, Unity, we use Lumberyard, these kind of commoditized engines that you can get essentially for free. Uh, that's pretty amazing. And so as we set up the company, we said to ourselves, well, how do we want to partner? What, what do we think the future looks like? And in our view, and the kinds of games that we're making, uh, live operating services, or simply put, having a long-term with your customers where you can keep giving them cool stuff to do, we want it to be foundational to our studio. So when we think about live ops or this ongoing relationship with customers and players, we knew that there's a lot of great tech out there, cloud services that we wanted to partner with. And we knew a lot of great folks at, uh, at Amazon. And so we ended up partnering with those guys and are working with Amazon on, on a lot of their tech. And that's also what led us to evaluate Lumberyard and ultimately you know, use, use Lumberyard for, uh, for our game tech, for the game engine, I should say. Got it. Okay. And and let's move on to the second of these pillars, business. Let's talk a little bit more about that. What what does that mean to you, this this business pillar and it coming after the technology pillar? Yeah, so sort of quote, you know, Mr. Mitch Lasky, who's my boss at Jamnet for a long time, he used to say, you know, games is about entertainment. It's not about it's not art necessarily. I mean, art's included in it, but it really is a business at the end of the day. And so if you're if you're in the games business, you're you're an entertainer, you know, you're you're doing an exchange of, of value for money. And that's also what, of course, fuels the ability for you to pay your engineers and pay your artists, which is just makes logical sense. And so we sort of took that to heart and we said, well, you know, if we're gonna run a, a proper business behind this, we're an entertainment company, we're exchanging kind of happiness for for, for money, as it were. And you need to basically build up a proper business. If I can buy happiness for money, I'll take that deal. Yeah. And I think it's, an, I mean, it sounds funny, but I think it's actually kind of a noble cause. You know, you, you think about people who work really, really hard uh, for their money. And then when they have enough money, what, what do they want to do with it? They want to have a good life. They want to take their kids to the movies. They want to play video games. They, you know, they want to go on vacation and, you know, maybe drink booze by the beach, whatever it is. Um, but all of that hard work ultimately manifests itself in being entertained and, and enjoying your life. And I think video games is is a big part of that these days. And there's a lot of people who you know who love games. It's 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 uh, it's great for them. So as a business, that's kind of the the exchange that we're in. 
kind of as a founder, you know, obviously you have to pay your team. So, you know, the business component of, of this is important. And I think it's two parts. It's sort of the business of running a company, but it's also the business of your game generating revenue such that you can run the company. Uh, and on the game generating revenue, that's where you get into obviously monetization and, and all that stuff, uh, which is a, obviously a super deep topic. But I think there's a well, well understood discipline about entrepreneurship and running a business and whether you bootstrap it or you raise money or you have a lifestyle business, um, but ultimately those businesses uh, live and die by customers feeling a good exchange for, for entertainment for money. How did you kind of approach that at Carbonated? So you've connected with Lloyd, you guys have agreed to do something. You're talking about the technology stack and how you're going to differentiate. How do you think about approaching the business challenges? It's a great question. So we wanted to come with our thesis. So we had kind of a particular thesis. We uh, brought in two other uh, kind of co-founders at the time. So there's four of us who ultimately founded the game company together, Colby and, and Chris Marf. So the four of us sort of founded it. And then, you know, our thesis, uh, we sort of had figured out our thesis. And then we basically went out and, and started to shop our thesis to both kind of investors and also to sort of publishers under the under the so idea of maybe we'll do some bootstrapping, some work for hire. And because obviously we needed to bring in money to, to start to pay both ourselves and talented uh, creators to join the company. What we found was that our thesis, we were a little bit early. Part of our thesis was, you know, kind of high-end 3D hardcore games will get into the top grossing charts and will be there to stay. And this is in 2015. There had been games that had sort of hit the top grossing, but had often fallen out, whether you look at kind of an Infinity Blade or, you know, CSR Racing and these games that would sort of hit the top 10 and then, and then drop back off pretty quickly. And the common thinking back then was uh, the markets are too small uh, to drive core games and they just won't sustain monetization and the art assets are too heavy, so you can't do live ops. That was sort of the common thinking. We, of course, said, no, no, this is going to be the future. These games are going to dominate. Uh, so it was it was uh, the, the kind of the, the investment and the valuations that we were looking at weren't great. So we ended up doing work for hire work, partnered with Glue early on. And, and we did that as a bootstrapping mechanism just to start bringing in money. I would say related that one of the bits of advice we were told earlier on, and I, I sort of think about it now and I sort of smile because it was good advice, was we had a bunch of really talented founders and early employees. And one of the things investors asked us was, well, you, you're all really talented, you're great, great folks, but have you ever worked together as a team? And we said, no, but we're going to figure it out, you know? And they said, well, there's something to having a team that's worked together before. Ultimately, we worked together. We're still all together. All the original co-founders are still here. We've been at it for more than five years. So it did work out that way. But I do think it was wise for investors to sort of ask us that question. You know, it's easy to say, I got these great folks. Can they work together? And I think that work for hire work we did rather than raising money in the first kind of couple of years was a really good discipline for us to work together, to refine the thesis, to really figure out where we wanted to go. And it was a way for us to, to bring in money and start hiring folks. We, we did work for hire. And then what happened in the industry around us was, you know, you had the launch of these premium live ops, hardcore games on mobile, you know, the PUBGs, the Fortnites, you know, of course now Call of Duty, Free Fire Mobile, you can go down, down the list, there's, there's plenty of them. Daishin Impact. That's right, yeah, Daishin Impact. And they're all in the top, top 10 grossing and they're staying there. Yeah. So once that happened, all of a sudden investors were like, hey, wow, look at that. Hardcore games can stay in the top 10 uh, for, for long periods of time. And then I think you saw a lot of investments starting to flow in. And you, of course, started to see a lot of companies exiting and having uh, great acquisitions uh, outbound. So it started to spin the uh, the investment ecosystem wheel pretty, pretty aggressively. And it's even spinning faster now. So we were able to then at that point raise money against our original thesis and uh, switch from work for hire work to, to building our own, our own product, which is what we're doing now. As far as that transition for those games, I mean, for the ones that have console versions, which a lot of the games you mentioned do, what's the revenue split there between mobile 
and PC console. I would suspect that what I think is going on there is there's just this huge demand for those games are great games. So I'll use Call of Duty as an example. You, know, you could argue, and we've talked to a lot of the players who play games like Call of Duty is in a lot of our research uh, about figuring out a thesis and which direction we want to go. And when you ask those players, you know, hey, how do you compare Call of Duty Mobile to Call of Duty on a PC? You know, they're smart. I mean, these are very, very astute players. And they know that the mobile game doesn't have the, the best interface compared to a PC or console. Like they, they get that. But mobile is oftentimes their primary device. Oftentimes mobile is the the device they want to play games on when they have free time and they love call of duty. So they're willing to sort of take a little bit of a, you know, a sacrifice on maybe controls or interface or the size of the screen or whatever to get kind of their call of duty fix. And I think what that shows you is there's just such a massive demand for these high quality games, games like call of duty and Fortnite and PUBG um, on mobile phones. And obviously the, the audiences are much, much larger on mobile phones, vastly larger, and you have embedded payments. So, you know, you can do microtransactions relatively easily when you have embedded payments on a phone, a little harder to do on a PC. So yeah, I, I think there's a super bright future for mobile as it pertains to, to those games. How that dollar actually splits out, I have no idea. You mentioned these users, and I'm curious how you think about audience in this framework. Putting the games business aside for a second, a lot of direct-to-consumer businesses are kind of audience-first businesses these days, where it's about building and serving an audience, and the products are kind of, I don't want to say secondary, but they're always in service of that built audience, because you're direct, it's a direct-to-consumer business, so the consumer is really the, the head of the line. Is that something that, you know, strategically you think is relevant to where kind of free-to-play and mobile games are at now? It doesn't seem like that's how most people think about it, but when I think of a company like Blizzard, for example, it always seems like they've taken a very audience-first approach. Not not a great question here. I'm just sort of I, I'm just sort of musing about this, and I'm curious how you think about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm as you know, like my, my kind of way I think about the business is customer-first, right? You're, you know, I'm a good problem solver, and, and I want to create content for customers. I want customers to enjoy the content. So I'm always, always, always customer-first. And so whether it's, uh, you know, a feature or art or a game design, Design or, or anything that we're building, we always think customer first. That's ultimately who it's for. And I think one of the reasons why LiveOps is so dominant and will continue to get more dominant is it is the best way to, to put content in front of your customers and see if they like it, listen to them. You know, So through LiveOps, essentially what LiveOps is, I use this kind of goofy analogy, but I say it's a little bit like a comedian when he's working on his material, right? He goes up in front of a you know, stage and he tells a bunch of jokes and he listens to the audience. Did they laugh or not? And if the audience laughs, he says to himself, okay, that's, that's gonna go on my set. Is that content worked? And then that comedian sort of flies around the country and tries different jokes with different audiences and starts to build out a, a, a bit of a, a, you know, a, a comedic set, you know, a, a bunch of jokes. And, but they're testing things, they're trying stuff, they're experimenting. And when they feel like they have a really good set, then they can roll out you know, their, their Netflix special or whatever it is. And I think video games, is, particularly live ops, is very similar to that. You start testing content, putting content out to players, players play it, they tell you whether they like it or not through data and analytics you know, and through talking to your customers. And through that relationship and testing content, just like the comedian tests jokes, you listen for the last, or in our case, you listen for engagement and purchasing and various things. And then through that, you start to figure out what these customers really like, and then you just give them more of that. And then they, you know, they enjoy it. And I think that process uh, continues over time and the studios that are really good at it and continue to service their audience with what they want. Those are the live ops games that just don't go anywhere. I mean, they stay stuck in the top grossing charts. You know, you get those with the candy crushes and the, you know, I mean, I used to I don't have it in front of me, but I have a list of all the top grossing games that are over five years old. There's a lot of them. 
And they just start continuing to, to talk to their players. Hey, you like that last level? Let's give you another one. Like, and they just keep supplying content to them. And those games tend to stick around. Makes sense. Kind of thinking about your strategy and how you're positioning yourself at, at Carbonated with the new opportunities that are available. And to me, this question is sort of relevant to what we're talking about. Do you see it as a one product at a time kind of studio or is it a multi-product strategy? And how have you kind of thought through that that decision? It's a great question. Yeah, so, so our studio is designed to be a, a potentially a two-product studio. And the idea there is we'll reuse our service, we'll reuse our, our technology. Games will be relatively similar in the sense that we'll target the same customers. Because as we're learning from one game and what those customers like, we might learn that, oh, they love this game, but they might like this other game. That, okay, yeah, perfect. Yeah, be the same kind of audience. And the, the, one other thing I'll throw in there too is the other thing about the team is sometimes teams want to do new stuff. They don't always want to work on the same game forever. So from a, a team standpoint, which is, of course, none of these games exist without a great team, you need to keep your team happy. And so sometimes they, they work on a game for three or four years. They say, I want to do something new. So having a second game that people can experiment on and, and express their creative freedom is important. So I think having a, you know, a two-studio company where one is in live ops and one is being incubated from the data you learn from a live ops one, I think is a, is a good strategy. So that's the one that we're ultimately pursuing. That is such a good point because like, like you mentioned, games, it's a, it's a world of changing technologies and a lot of people get into it to do something new. And, and then you get put on a live ops game that's really successful and it almost feels, it can feel like punishment. Like, oh wow, we're doing so well that we gotta just keep doing this. I, I was here to do something new. I think that's a great strategy. And there's different kinds of people. Some people love the live ops. They love the constant entertainment with customers. You know, they love like, quotes, telling the joke, getting the feedback. They love putting out content. Out goes the red dragon, out goes the green dragon, out goes the purple dragon and seeing what the players like. Uh, and then to your point, some people love new technology. They love new things. They wanna try something different. And games are created, particularly live ops hits are created by both those types. You have to somebody create the new game and use new technology. And you have to have folks who, who love entertaining customers daily. And we try to hire for both. And, uh, and I think the best way you can keep people happy is having you know, two product. More than two products gets complicated. And these days, a single mobile hit is plenty big. So having two of them, I mean, if you had two successful mobile live ops games, like, wow, that'd be, that'd be a home run. So if we end up having two uh, successful hits, you know, come bug me again. Say you said only two games, but uh, you know, we, we look at the the big players out there, like the supercells of the world, who have multiple hits that are that are running as live ops games, and and are just uh, you know so impressed by that. So we envision ourselves one day having two live ops successful games, and that would make us very very happy. And you're talking about pretty big scale games too. So that's yeah, that's a already a massive place to be. I've heard it said that you know in war the the conquering force should not be the same as the occupying force, and I think that's that's kind of like what you're saying about these game teams where sometimes the same people who might love creating the new product might not be the ones who love live operating it. And I've certainly seen that to be true. Yeah, I think you're right. They're, they're different problems you're solving. One, you're solving kind of the creation without data necessarily. And the second one, you're, you're live operating with data. Although I will say something, which is these days during the creation process, you can test a lot of that creative and it's very similar to live ops. You know, we, we, all of our creative, we test, you know, we put out on Facebook, we test with customers to, to make sure that, you know, we're not sort of just doing something in the, in a vacuum and more and more, even the creative process is, is feeling a bit like live ops, which is not necessarily a good thing. You're getting feedback from players. So this is perfect to go to your third pillar of appeal and how you kind of think about 
that, it sounds like you are doing, you know, doing some market testing. How do you think about appeal and how does that fit into to your process? Yeah, I mean, appeals, the, I think, generally for, depends on your personality, you know, is also one of the, the fun parts. It's the, it's the graphics, it's the excitement. It's if you remove technology and business from game to what's left, that's all the appeal stuff. It's the art, it's the graphics, it's the gameplay, it's what's innovative, new and fun. It's surprise and delight. It's kind of all that stuff wrapped up in a big, big bubble. And so I think, you know, we, we break it down in a bunch of different ways internally, but, you know, we look at kind of the, the brand appeal or the visuals. And I always say it's everything you see before you ever play the game. So that's your icon, your splash screen, your the art of the game. It's maybe how it's exposed to you through your friends, what they say about your game. Oh, you got to play this game, right? It's everything that's before you actually interact. And, and I call that kind of the, the appeal bucket. And then next to that is the actual game play, what you actually do. And that's, you know, kind of how you control the game, what you're tapping on, the results you know, the result of your taps or your, your interactions. So there's sort of the appeal bucket, everything before you play the game. And then there's the playing of the game, like how you're actually interacting. And those two things are, are separate, but they are deeply intertwined. Uh, it's also sort of my, my simplest example of this is maybe match three games. Like match three is the same mechanic. You're always sort of matching three gems, but the appeal or the brands or the skins or the graphics sit on top of them. There's tons of different ones. You know, you've got puzzles, dragons, you've got jewels, you've got... Uh, there's, there's tons of matches. You can't crush. You've got a whole bunch of, they're generally the same mechanic matching three and you get level after level. Uh, but the skin or the look and the feel is, is different and they target different markets. And I think that's true of lots of different genres. You know, first person shooters, you can make the same argument. Racing games, you can make the same, not the same argument. Uh, Battle Royales, you can make the same argument. And uh, so I think we look at those two carefully. And when we were testing, we we're trying to figure out one, what were we excited about building uh, both from a sort of brand look and feel standpoint, as well as a game mechanic standpoint. And we looked at those two separately and we figured out how to merge them together. And then we tested those with, with players and uh, generally got some pretty good feedback early on. Of course, we had to build the whole thing, uh, which is what we're doing now. But uh, yeah, we think about those two buckets. So look and feel everything before you play the game. And then just the mechanic, how do you play the game? What's How do you master it? What's fun about it? The moment to moment gameplay stuff. And so for the before you play, I think it's pretty easy to imagine the process that you are testing. Um, well, maybe easier or not for some, but you're, I imagine that means running some test advertisements and you're kind of basically trying to get a sense of what user acquisition would cost given a certain concept and a certain brand look and feel and certain creative. Do I have that right so far? Yeah, and and also knowing, you know, frankly, we we also talk to a lot of players. We'll go on, you know, uh, Reddit's and Discord chats, and we'll talk to people about the genres that we're interested in. And we're sort of a dystopian present, you know, maybe you could call it a little tropey, but we love it. And it turns out there's lots and lots of people who love that stuff. You can sort of look at a game like PUBG to say, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who like these kinds of games. And then we talk to those players, hey, what do you, what do you like? What don't you like? What are you sort of sick of? What do you think would be cool? You know, we sort of glean a lot of insights from talking to the players in those kind of genre or look and feel buckets. I hate saying genre because genre combines look and feel and mechanics, sort of say look and feel or appeal separate from mechanic. So we start with sort of the, the top of the funnel, which is look and feel again, because you haven't played the game. So but you're saying you, you're having these qualitative discussions about the look and feel on platforms like Reddit. Yeah. Reddit, you know, uh, Facebook, go to Facebook groups, uh, discord groups. We just sort of go in there and chat with folks and, and talk to them about it. Uh, we have obviously our own ideas and opinions and we sort of throw out, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened? And we look at what people are talking about and just get a sense of what people are kind of sick of doing and what they're excited about, maybe what's different in you. So that's kind of the appeal, the look and feel graphical brand side of things. You know, again, the stuff before you play the game. And then on the game mechanic side, we're, we're doing a little bit of innovation there. We're doing kind of some traditional stuff and some new stuff. 
and I won't go too deep in that because we haven't announced it yet. Um, but what we have announced is that we do have some AI supported gameplay, which is tweaking some game mechanics in new ways to really give players a, a, a different way of playing uh, some stuff that they're pretty familiar with. So adding some innovation through technology and hopefully making these games uh, a little bit different and, and easier and more fun to play. So again, that's where some of our technology is powering a different kind of mechanic, similar. But a little different. And is there anything else in terms of appeal that you think we, we've missed or should make sure to cover? No, other than like, it's 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 such a tricky thing. Like, you know, there's no process that's ever going to get it right. I think there's, it's such a vast, great area to, to experiment with. You've got brands that are that are coming back. And I, I looked at the sort of explosion of Pokemon Go, uh, not just Pokemon, but Pokemon married with this new mechanic, this location-based mechanic. Uh, that's amazing. And then you've got great new innovative products that are, that are coming out of just, you know, the, the industry, you know, pick up some of the Supercell games there. And then you have games that are being brought over to mobile that are sort of tried and true on PC comps that are coming over to mobile phones. You know, the PUBGs, the Fortnites, the Free Fires, you know, then you have spins on, on proven mechanics. But I think all of them are ultimately voted on by players at really large scale. Um, I think one of the both benefits and curses of mobile is it's so big that you can almost do anything. You know, you can make an argument that any game could, could be successful in mobile because there's just so many people and, and everyone's so diverse. So there's, there's lots of different stuff you can build it, which is great. It can be a little paralyzing. I think the only caution I would give, and I've seen lots of games struggle with this, is trying to be everything for everybody. That ultimately all, almost always fails. Uh, you do have to kind of pick your audience and really give them what they want, super serve them as it were. I think you sometimes see people who, who would like, oh, I want to make a match three and I want to make it 3D and I want to have a battle royale and I want to have this and I want to have that. And it kind of gets hodgepodgey and then it's a game for kind of nobody. I think that's the one danger that I think happens more often than not. And it's one of the reasons why games kind of, I think, struggle. Having a very clear view of what your audience wants and super serving them that thing, whatever that is, I think more games are successful doing that than the ones that sort of hodgepodge too much together. Absolutely. I, it's a problem I see with clients all the time. And, and a lot of times what it comes down to is fear, fear to actually make hard choices about their own product and, and sort of the sense of, oh, there's safety if I just make it for everyone. When in fact, that's the one way that you can almost guarantee it's not going to work. You're, you're absolutely right. And it's tough, right? Because you, you know, you've invested so much of your life and, and your emotion in it. And, and lots of your team members have ideas that are all good in their own right. You may have a, somebody who said, oh, you know, you're, let's say you're not making a battle royale game. And somebody's like, but look at the battle royale games. There's like four in the top 10 grossing that are killing it. We've got to do that. And you think, oh, well, they're not wrong. Those, those games are really successful, but that's not our game. So then you have to say no. And then your, your team person's a little bumped out and, and they're not wrong but you just have to sort of say, hey, we have to say, we can't do everything. We have to say no to certain things and, and pick your battles. And that is just constant going on, you know, that, that whether that's, you know, NFTs or blockchain stuff or genres or graphics or how you do UA or the engine you should use, the tool you should use, or uh, I think Bill Gurley said it, which I, which I always love this quote, but more, more startups die of indigestion than starvation. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's Bill. That's and great. It's, it's sort of true. They try to do too much and they just go, oh, like they topple over where uh, if you're lean and mean and, and you do a very clear thesis and you try it, maybe it doesn't work, but you're not out of money. Your team's not too big. You can try again. Uh, versus if you try to do too much and you raise a bunch of money, do a lot of things, you don't do any of them well, lots of startups struggle because they, they just uh, yeah, died in digestion. That's great. Uh, Travis, there's so much I, I want to ask you about that we're not going to have time for today. I want to talk about bringing on new talent and raising money and kind of managing the equity share there and some of the other challenges you've faced in your journey with Carbonated. But we're going to have to do another time, unfortunately. But this has been great. I'm so glad that we got through 
this um, engineering business and appeal framework. I think that was awesome and, and it's going to be super valuable for people. Are you looking for any new team members or anything at Carbonated? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're uh, we're always looking for talented folks. I think what's interesting right now, and even even, even for us, the industry is growing so quickly. There's such a demand for gameplay engineers. So if you're if you're coming out of college, you're a great gameplay engineer. Lucky you, because you're in huge demand. And I think for us at Carbonate, we're always looking for really really great uh, gameplay engineers. So if you're a great gameplay engineer out there and you want to come join us on our crazy journey and build some cool mobile games. Uh, that scale to really large audiences. Hopefully we're the right team for you. So reach out to us. Uh, but yeah, we're looking for gameplay engineers to join us, uh, make some cool games. That is an amazing opportunity. Travis, Colby, Chris, and Lloyd are absolute badasses. And if the right person's out there, I hope that they reach out to you because it could be an amazing opportunity all around. Travis, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking. I hope we can do it again soon. Count me in. I love it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Another episode of Playmakers Podcast is in the bag. And if you want the show notes with all the links wrapped up with a bow for you, you can find all that at playmakerspodcast.com. That's playmakerspodcast.com. If you're interested in giving some feedback on what you'd like to see on future episodes, you can also reach out to me there. And in the meantime, if you want to support what we do, the way to do that is to write us a review and subscribe. I will see you on the next episode. We have some great stuff coming your way. So I will catch you then on Playmakers.